Welcome, everybody. Football Scoop Podcast. Great to have everybody back. Today, uh, this is Scott Roussel. Once again, I'm joined by uh, John Bryce and Zach Barnett, two of our uh, our national writers, the guys who go deep, the guys who bring you the great content every day on Football Scoop. Welcome, guys. Glad to be here, Scott, and glad to get this rolling in between the first and second full weeks of the college football season. Good morning, gentlemen. Great to see you. So week one was fantastic. It was great to see everybody back in the stadiums. Uh, today, I want to take us uh, narrow. I want to talk about some of these upsets that we saw, especially uh, FCS over the FBS. There was there was a plethora of them, and uh, I'm fascinated by that. And then I do want to talk very specifically uh, about Kevin Kelly and Presbyterian and, and his future and his game and what he's going to do this season. But let's start with FCS versus FBS. JB, tell me what you saw there. Well, I saw six FCS teams not only register wins against FBS teams, but we saw all six of those FCS teams collect checks and notch those victories on the road. And and most of those wins, frankly, were not flukes. South Dakota State, John Stiegelmeyer deserves a ton of credit. That program absolutely manhandled host Colorado State. And uh, Steve Adazio's squad had uh, more than 32,000 fans out in Fort Collins in attendance at that game, and they all went home very disappointed. You look then in the SEC at Clark Lee's debut as a head coach at Vanderbilt. ETSU, which only relaunched its program in 2015, uh, just absolutely dominated the Commodores 23-3. to Vanderbilt scored in the first quarter and did not score again the remainder of the game. They went more than 49 minutes on their home field against an FCS foe without scoring a single point. Um, I think there's real offensive identity issues there. I think you're going to continue to see Joy Lynch take a very central role in that Vanderbilt offense. Um, David Rye is technically the offensive coordinator, um, but I think we're all hearing, certainly I've been hearing now for about 10 days, that Joy Lynch is getting more and more involved in that Vanderbilt offense. Definitely something to continue to monitor. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if Clark Lee came out and addressed that because I think it's going to become apparent that Joey is uh, it's certainly what I'm hearing as well. Joey Lynch is going to take a, a, a significant step forward in that in leading that offense. I mean, don't y'all? All six of those losses are obviously bad, but don't you think that Vanderbilt one is the the most depressing, the most alarming, given the slate they have ahead of them to score three points against an FCS team, lose by twenty? to be completely outclassed and then know that you have uh, Georgia, Florida, the rest of your SEC schedule still ahead of you. Great point, Zach. And and here's another thing to consider. Two years ago in the, in the last full season of college football, as Derek Mason uh, was winding the way towards the end of his Vanderbilt tenure that we all saw uh, in Thanksgiving weekend last year, that same Vanderbilt program beat that same ETSU program 38 to nothing. Um, and instead, in this game, Vanderbilt not only lost 23-3, to but ETSU, FCS ETSU, outgained mighty SEC Vanderbilt 179-85 to yards on the ground. So, again, to my point, it wasn't a fluke. It not only wasn't a fluke, it was a manhandling. Yeah, how can you feel confident about winning any games? I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and condemn Vanderbilt to a winless season after at 0-1. And certainly, uh, hopefully, their offensive changes work. But you can't leave that stadium Saturday night feeling confident about winning any game. Here, here's the silver lining on your Vanderbilt schedule and maybe the worst game of the year in college football. 
um, they play Connecticut in a few weeks. So um, okay, there's and, one. And, and that's, a, that's a natural segue for what we're discussing here because one of those other FCS wins was Holy Cross, which was a playoff participant in the spring. Um, but it was no fluke that Holy Cross not only won at UConn, but then turned around and, and ultimately proved to be the end of the R Randy Edsel era atop the Huskies program. So Holy Cross won by 10 points at UConn. It led at the half. It led by 10 points in the third quarter, and it won the game by 10 points. So, Zach, I would I would not agree with your statement that Vanderbilt's the most depressing. Uh, Vanderbilt's in a, in a tough situation. You know, they they weren't thriving under Derek Mason, you know, hence the change. And I don't think anybody had any grandiose expectations for Vanderbilt, to be honest. I think everybody understood it's going to be a rough year. Washington and Colorado State losing those games? And it's not year one. For those guys, uh, Adazio's program, and South Dakota State's really good. I get that, but I mean, they whipped Colorado State. Um, yeah, that that was a, a whipping, and it wasn't a fluke. I wasn't, I we didn't pick that game, but if we did, I would have taken South Dakota State every single time. Yeah, and I, w I, I got to do some radio last week in uh, Rapid City and discuss then, and I was asked then what I thought about the South Dakota State Colorado State game, and to give myself a little credit and a little blame, I said, South Dakota State will go into the fourth quarter with a chance to win that game. Well, South, Carolina, uh, South Dakota State went into the fourth quarter with complete control of that game. So not just a chance, they had complete control of that game. Um, and to your point, uh, uh, Scott, about that Washington game, there's another one really interesting. Washington scored a touchdown in the first quarter and then very obviously never scored again. They went more than 50 minutes at home in year two of the Jimmy Lake era and did not score again against a Montana team that they had not lost to in exactly 100 years, 100 years. <laughs> They've played 20 times and they had not lost to Montana in a hundred years. Yeah. And that's a program that, you know, as, as you mentioned, Scott, they won the PAC 12 North last year. They didn't get to play in the championship game because of COVID, but they won that, that division. And now they got to go to Michigan this weekend. what is their offense it's not good no no that, that's the appropriate question what is the offense because uh, i don't think anybody has a great answer no and and it, it certainly is not going to get easier as um jim harbaugh has all of his own issues that i'm sure we'll dive into over the course of this season um at michigan but now washington's flying cross country coming off a loss, and I'm going to touch on this some this week at um, on, on the site at Scoop, but Jimmy Lake last week was talking about how um, he wants to keep these rivalries going after some folks said that they should discontinue the Montana series, and he said, well, the SEC plays two of these games every year. He had some really interesting comments about the alliance and non-conference scheduling uh, that you'll be able to read in full this week on Football Scoop, but it really, really interesting stuff. You know, you know, we're we were almost uh, we're, the Big 12 is lucky we're not talking about them because uh, number seven, Iowa State almost lost at home in northern Iowa. Uh, it seems like they almost lose in northern Iowa every single time they play. They did lose early in Matt Campbell's tenure uh, a couple years ago. They took him to double OT. Uh, it was 16 10 this week. Oklahoma State squeaked by Missouri State by seven. And then uh, Kansas, very, very fortunate to beat South Dakota. Tough spot for Lance Leipold. I mean, South Dakota's a very good team. Well, I was proud. I was happy to see Lance. 
I cheer for good people. Um, and there's good people on both those staffs, but Lance is a great guy. Uh, I was glad to see them get that win. Uh, it's important to get off to a good footing there. Was Iowa State looking ahead? I doubt it with under Matt, but they got a huge one, huge one this week. They, I, they, I can't pinpoint it. They struggle out the gate. Obviously, last year they uh, they, they got dump trucked at home by Lafayette. Uh, they, they still haven't beaten Iowa. Obviously, uh, they probably were human nature looking ahead to this this week's game. But uh, I guess the flip side to Matt Campbell's teams always getting better as the season progresses, which they obviously do, is that they start so slowly every single season. Yeah, and um, you know it's possible they were reading football scoop bold predictions and saw that somebody on the side <laughs> had picked Iowa State to win a national championship. So um, you know every coach will tell you about that rat poison in the media, <laughs> and so perhaps that's it. No, that that's the that's the thing about Iowa State. Um, they've never entered a season, not just under Campbell, but really ever in the history of their program. They've never entered a season with these kind of expectations, not just. Um, for team superlatives and what the team can do in the Big 12, but they're touting a couple of different potential Heisman Trophy contenders in uh, Purdy, the quarterback, and Brees Hall, the running back. So I think that um, just learning to live in this new existence for Iowa State football is genuinely part of the process for the Cyclones. I'll tell you a funny story, JB, I might not share with you. So Zach's been with us almost 10 years, uh, so he's heard this. John uh, Bryce has been with us about a year. So I think this is 2015 and we do one bold prediction and to tell you how wrong I was, my one bold prediction was that that was going to be Nick Saban's last year in Tuscaloosa. I said, I didn't know where he was going to go. Didn't know what he was going to do. I just got the sense that that was going to be his last year. And we published that on either a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And the next day I flew up to Chicago, uh, Northwestern was hosting Stanford. And I go to the facility and Pat Fitz greets me. He's just a wonderful guy. I love Fitz. And one of the first things Pat, and, and I bring this up because Zach always references, you just don't understand how many people, especially in the coaching profession, read our website. Fitz, one of the first things he says to me is he goes, I can't believe you wrote that about Nick. And I was like, this is one bold prediction, like no big deal. And he's like, no, dude, you know, you can't write things like that. You know, people, like we read that stuff. I was like, yeah, no, I, no. Anyway, I kind of move on. I'm not kidding you. Like three hours later, the phone call, the phone rings at Tuscaloosa. I'm like, oh, okay. And guy picks up. He says, hey, Scott, you know, I work for Coach Saban. He's a little upset you wrote that. And I was like, it was one bold prediction. I mean, come on. And he's like, no, seriously, he's upset. He says in about 10 minutes, this number is going to call you back, but it's going to be him. And he wants to talk to you. Like, it's fine, but just tell me. It's just one bold prediction, you know? <laughs> Come on. And no kidding, like 10 minutes later, he calls. Scotty, hey, Coach, why'd you write that? I said, Coach, it was just one bold prediction. And he's like, Scott, you can't write that. People know that, like, we, you know each other, and we know each other. And, like, they think if you write that, that that's coming from me. I'm like, Coach, obviously it was not coming from you. Um, it, was, it was one of those weird weird moments and but it also it zach's right you just don't understand how many people especially in the profession read football scoop so and legend has it they won the national championship that season just to make you look bad 
No other reason. That's the only reason they want it. No, they, he and I might have discussed this a few times since. Yeah, yeah. Scott is personally responsible, it sounds like, for a couple of Nick Saban's subsequent contract extensions. That's what I'm Nick taking from this. Nick does not forget. Okay. Nick doesn't forget. Let's <laughs> change the subject. Kevin Kelly, uh, coach who never punts, had an outstanding debut at Presbyterian. Take it away, guys. Tell me about. Tell me what I need to know about that game. Go ahead, Zach. So obviously they scored 84 points. Uh, John, you wrote a great story for the website about that. But the, the thing that strikes me about it is uh, Kevin Kelly's original thesis for the way he coached high school football was, you know, I'm trying to Billy Bean this thing and find the the market inefficiencies of high school football, and we don't kick off or we don't we do these onside kicks because that's just the way the game that that gives me an advantage here. You kick off what from the 40, 35 at the high school level, you don't have a kicker that can kick it deep. So, you know, when I get to college, it, the game will be different. And then here he goes, his first game, he kicks off onside kicks 10 times. Uh, the only only times he didn't do it, uh, they scored with three seconds left in the first half to go up 56-29. So he did an onside kick there. And then after they got to 77, he called the dogs off and started kicking deep. Uh, but he was asked about it after the game. And the tone of the question was kind of like, you know, you, is this really going to work? You know, they, they played an NAIA team uh, this past week. They play another one this coming week. It was like, you know, are you really going to be able to, to do this once you play the, the quote-unquote big boys on your schedule? And his answer was, oh, well, we, we only worked in a couple of our onside kicks. We have three more that we're going to do. We're going to start doing some more directional kicks, some punch, some pooch kicks. So it is very much all gas, no breaks still for him. Uh, they didn't punt. They went four or five on fourth down. So I, I think that was the most interesting thing to see that his strategy, you know, maybe at one time it was, you know, I do this because it works at the high school level. I have a huge talent advantage at Pulaski Academy. Now he's at Presbyterian, uh, the, the smallest school in Division One. One of they have like 2,000 students. You know, he said every time I've heard him talk since he's taken the job, he's like, well, you know, I only met half my roster a few weeks ago just because of, you know, the, the, the way their school runs there. So it is very much – I my perception of him changed that he is full speed ahead with Kevin Kelly football. Yeah, absolutely. It's not um, a reinvention of what Hal mommy tried to do all those years ago when he was air raid and chucking it all over the place and would occasionally onside kick. No, this is Kevin Kelly's brand of things. And here's a couple of other things to note. Um, as we see more than ever, Colleges are charting possessions, and they're counting how many possessions they're getting a game. It's never been a more important metric because they're using that to see then how many scores they're going to need based off of how many times on average they're possessing the football. Presbyterian ran 94 plays in its first game of the season, in its first game ever under Kevin Kelly, and it ran the ball 33 times for almost 200 yards. But when it got close, it was a throw into the end zone every single time. All 12 touchdowns, touchdown passes to set a new record. 10 by the Michigan transfer at quarterback. Um, I think Halfley maybe is his name uh, or Hartley. It escapes me at the moment. But 10 touchdown passes from the Michigan transfer to tie the record. 12 as a team to set the record. But still almost 200 rushing yards and 94 offensive plays. This has um, got college coaches talking around the sport. It's got especially college coaches talking that may see Presbyterian later this year. Some guys are like, 
Um, what are we going to do? We don't have the depth. Some other guys are very much licking their chops, knowing that now because of this debut in one game, Kevin Kelly put a bit of a target on Presbyterian's back. And that's a good thing for the sport. That's a good thing, obviously, for Presbyterian and for all involved. So yeah, the 94. Oh, go ahead, Scott. No, finish up, Zach. Oh, I was just going to say the 94 plays, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. That jumped out to me almost as much as the 84 points. And so I, I think the interesting thing will be, as you mentioned, the target on his back. How committed to this is he going to be when, when they lose a game or two? And when, you know, if they go 0 for 8 on onside kicks and someone just runs it, you know, right up, right down their throat, does he, does he have a counterpunch or is this, is this, is he so committed to this strategy that he thinks it's going to work out more often than it doesn't? And will he, to me, one, one quick question, uh, sort of rhetorical, will his style of play cause some opponents to get out of their own styles of play. And by that, I mean, if they recover the ball at the 50 and they're typically a very aggressive team, are they then going to try to become a more ball control team on a short field to keep Kevin Kelly's offense off the field as much as possible? I think there's, um, we've seen continued emphasis on the FCS level. That is the one true silver lining, in my opinion, of the horrible COVID pandemic year is that we saw FCS get more spotlight with its spring season. And because of that, I think that's carrying into this fall. Yeah, they're almost like the bizarro world version of the service academies where they're much more comfortable playing their style than, than you are. And it, it's very tempting to think that you can do what they do, but they practice it year round. So it'll be interesting to see, as you said, if they can drag their opponents into deep water, so to speak, when, when they're comfortable in a, in a game where each side runs 90 plays, whereas if, if you don't play that style, it's hard to pull it off when when it's the one time a year you do it. So this past hiring cycle, uh, the FCS level, we saw two really, or yeah, anyway, we saw two really unconventional hires, Deion Sanders and Eddie George. Um, and both, you know, the athletic director said, you know, the conventional is just, it's not changing the culture here let's 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 go big and see if we can pull it off um and i think dion one you know has gotten a lot of attention a lot of national attention and i think a lot of people are saying man you know it's not it's not conventional it's not gonna work everywhere it couldn't it shouldn't work everywhere perhaps but i think it's absolute been slam dunk for jackson state uh for the university and I think you're going to see that in terms of enrollment, in terms of dollars flowing into the university and all the things that university presidents, like directors like to see. Could Kevin Kelly, you know, who, you know, has, has a national following, you know, especially in the coaching world, uh, in, in the media world, you know, could he wind up being that unconventional hire somewhere? Somebody says, hey, we've got to try something different. UConn, for example. You know, does that make any sense? Well, and, and plus... Kevin Kelly has um, one Bill Belichick on speed dial um, and, and touts a close friendship there that honestly, Bill Belichick, I think has talked about the friendship more than Kevin Kelly has. So, which tells you what kind of respect Belichick has for him. And to your point, Scott, we're in a more volatile time than ever before in college athletics, where no move is made strictly about the product on the field, but also about marketing the product on the field and fighting for potential um, relevancy and advertising and broadcast dollars down the road. So you you bring up a great point in that regard because 
winning with panache is never more important than it is right now. It'll be interesting to see how he does when he doesn't have a talent advantage. Obviously, Pulaski had great players. Uh, this past week, they played in NAIA school right. as, as an FCS team. So it'll be, does he adapt uh, or does he not have to when he doesn't have the most talented players on, on his side? So that, that, I think that's going to be the thing I'm watching uh, most intently the rest of the season. I took a look at Presbyterian's schedule Sunday, and it's it's a little it's easier up front. Um, they've got some real football games at the end of the season, uh, but if he can if he can build up you know a seven and one seven and zero oh, if he can get off to a start like that it almost doesn't matter how he finishes if he's got that excitement behind him and now like ESPNs of the world are like oh and here's how Kevin Kelly's team did you know like I've never punts. All of a sudden, there's some panache, and all of a sudden, an athletic director goes, hey, uh, we need to look into this. I, I, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that he could make a jump if he can get it going, you know, at least seven, eight, nine wins uh, this year. You guys have been awesome today. I don't want to keep us too long. I want to be short and sweet. I want to give our viewers, uh, our listeners, an opportunity to get in and out uh, very specific topics. We're going to do these frequently, and uh, it was a pleasure having you guys on today. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank- Look forward to a season full of them. Thank you. All right, guys. See you all soon.